Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Titties. Well, that's a dramatic way to start the very, uh, not I mean, not so serious show, but titties. When has this ever even remotely been a serious show? Ever. S- we have our moments. We have very brief moments followed by complete chaos and fuckery. Complete arsery. Complete arsery. Arsery. Welcome to number eight. Uh, great question. I'm Good not going to try and name the, the number of episodes because I don't know what it is. So welcome to the episode. Welcome to the episode where the word of the day is arsery. I like that. That's that's a good word of the day. Yeah, great word of the day. So, if you're listening to this, when this is out, we've slightly mixed up our schedule of when we're releasing episodes. So, if you're releasing to this, if you're releasing, releasing to, this, to this, if you're listening to this as it's released, you might be on your Monday morning commute to work. So, if that is you, I hope you have a lovely week. Mm. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, you wonderful, beautiful, sexy individual. Exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for listening. Tom, what's happened to you this week? Anything exciting? Uh, well, um, no, not really, to be honest. No. Just well, the same as last week, I guess, really. <laughs> um, we're still relatively in phasing out the lockdown in yeah, Sydney. Yeah, slow, but we, it's... We went, we went to the pub on <gasps> That's Tuesday. right. We had our first pub outing with yeah. our two like best mates that we usually... They're our pub peeps. Mm-hmm. It was excellent. It was... Not as weird as I thought it was going to be. Like, it wasn't that different. It was just kind of the same. And we've, we've gone back to the gym, too. Yep. That's I have the very sore muscles to yeah. prove it. First day, I was struggling to move my legs mm. in any which way or direction. It's not a good time. No. See, this is why you either need to be slovenly all the time and never get fit, or you need to always stay fit and never get unfit. Sucks when you used to be fit and then you're trying to get it back. Yeah. I think that's probably why we both injured ourselves so badly. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, that and I've hurt my wrist after punching one of our friends. To be fair, he asked he me did. to punch him. He did ask you He to. asked me to punch him as hard as I could in the stomach because he was bragging about how much he'd been working out during quarantine. And so stupid me punched him as hard as I could in the stomach and my wrist is still hurting like a week on, so I may have to go to the doctor about that. Yeah, we'll okay, see. that's we'll we'll give it a go. Interesting. Well, then, yeah. Oh, we ordered an official podcast sofa, so we have a little spare room in our apartment that we're going to turn into like a little podcast den. Because at the moment, we just do it in our lounge room, and I find when you have side hustles like we do, you need to be very careful about balancing your hustle and your relax and so doing this in our living room where we relax and chill out kind of blurs that line a little bit so it'll be nice to have a dedicated yeah, space exactly that like having a dedicated little podcast area as well as and it's got cup holders yeah it's gonna be sick it's very cool and we very can exciting. literally recline the chairs back like the sofa with our glasses of wine in the cup holders it's possibly the best purchase i've ever made work out the mics to be coming down on top of us. Yeah. We don't even have to sit. Like Grecian babies feeding me grapes, but with a microphone instead. <clears throat> yeah, it's a microphone what I'm recording picturing. your voice instead yeah. of grapes. 
but yeah, I think that's. I don't think anything else exciting happened this week. The pub, um, the podcast so far, which will hopefully be here next week. Oh, our first mini sewed went live. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's new. Yeah. Um, I haven't received much word on it yet, but it's, it's only been out for a day. It only yeah. was released the day prior to us recording this. So we'll, we'll get, you know, we've got to wait for the analytics and all that stuff and people's feedback and, you know, all that sort of stuff, mm. all that good juicy stuff. All that good stuff. Um, so I know they already know this from the title, but in case they haven't read the title, who are you covering this week, Tama? I am covering Notorious Cannibal, Jeffrey Dahmer. And I am covering Notorious Cannibal, Albert Fish. It's our cannibal... Which we did without even meaning to. Yeah. Just our... was a weird coincidence. I'm trying to find a, like, a fun way to say it. Like it's cannibal bonanza. Can incidents. Cannibal incidents. There's something in there, but I'm not quick-witted enough to immediately come up yeah. with it on the fly. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of coincidental that we both picked... Cannibals. It wasn't really planned at all. No, it wasn't. We never planned this. No, but this is somehow like the we least end up planned and thought out podcast. And somehow we always end up running a theme mm. <laughs> most of the time. It's so funny because when I tell people, like at my work, that we run a podcast and they seem mildly impressed for about thirty seconds, and I'm like, no, no, no you don't understand. This is the m- most disorganized fuckery. Well, it's not that it's disorganized. It's it's. That it's no, but we don't like rehearse. But it's low maintenance because you don't rehearse for it. It's a podcast. It's like it's a show that you do. Yeah, I guess so. But we don't like really edits. Like we don't really edit anything. But that's that's (laughs) kind of what we probably should. No, that's what a podcast is. Is it's just you, yeah, I guess, another person or multiple people speaking your minds at that current point. Yeah, that's true. Like most of them are live, and they happen live, and they happen weekly, and like us. Can you imagine doing it live with the cats? I would stress the fuck out every every fucking episode. Well, I would actually like at one point to do like have a video component. Yeah, so that's that's definitely on the agenda we'll for see. the for the near future. We um, shall see. We we would like to to set that up and bring back start doing um the Ball Millennials podcast mm, up again. That's, that's been on the yeah breaks a bit due to quarantine covid but um due to rona due to the old good old rona thanks rona for your fucking um, ruining everything yeah your mishaps but uh yeah shall i just get going also i'm just gonna warn you like i know all the people we cover are like fucked up but like this guy in particular is fucked up mm. just so you're aware. Yeah, I feel like most people listening to the show have come for like the idea of true crime. Yeah, and just like be prepared, like strap yourselves in because it's going to be a bumpy ride. She's going to get cray. So I'm talking about Albert Fish, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Vampire, a.k.a. the Werewolf of Wisteria, a.k.a. the Grey Man, a.k.a. the Boogeyman. Wow, Jesus Christ. He's a man of many names. Very, a lot of names, a lot of mm. titles. And we're taking it back this time as well. So Albert Fish was born in 1870 Mm. in Washington, D.C. 
Uh, so Fisher's parents were split immigrants with his mother being a Scot-Irish-American mm-hmm. and his father being an American-American. Uh, a full-blooded a, American. A normal, red-blooded, Trump-loving yeah. American. Gun-shooting. No offense to any Trump-lovers. Well, actually, no. Fuck that. Offense to Trump lovers. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, I don't think there's a Trump lover out there that you can. I really hope say it, is a good person. I, I really don't mean to offend you, but if you do listen to this podcast and you're a Trump supporter, please just stop listening to this podcast. You know what I mean, you can't really be a Trump supporter and be supportive like, of anyone that's not yeah. a white male. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, as someone who is distinctly not a white male, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Anyway, getting back to the reason we all came here. So, Fisher's father was 43 years his mother's senior and was actually 75 years old when Fish was born. Jesus. Fish is the youngest of three siblings. Fisher's father, Randall, was a boat captain who suffered from religious mania. And as usual, when I have something that I don't know what the fuck it means, I looked it up. Okay. So, I have the dictionary definition of religious mania which is a hyper religiosity is a psychiatric disturbance in which a person's experiences intense religious beliefs or experience that interferes with normal functioning hmm. so it's like okay. so religious to the point that you can't like function wow that's properly. actually very fascinating yeah and fisher's entire family actually had a pretty serious history of mental illness his uncle Whoa. suffered from mania and was in a psychiatric um sorry no his uncle suffered from mania and his brother was confined confined to a state mental hospital and his sister Annie was also diagnosed with a mental affliction. Three other relatives were also diagnosed with mental illnesses and his mother had oral and visual hallucinations. Whoa. Intense. So some pretty significant mental health yeah, history in the family there. In the waters in that <laughs> fucking bloodstream. So Jesus. in Fisher's five, his father dies of a heart attack and his mother could no longer afford to keep him because this is like you know Back in the eighteen, yeah, eighteen seventies. So like, there's no Centrelink or anything to support a single mother. Yeah. So she drops him at the St John's Orphanage in Washington, where the teachers regularly torture the children under the pretense of religious teaching, oh, and they God. also encourage the children to torture each other. Oh Jesus! So the kids will be forced to strip naked and whip and beat each other, which is where Albert Fish develops his sado. Um, oh God, I can't pronounce this word. Sado, mm, I was saying it in my head. Sado, macism, It's like being oh, a masochist, yeah. but I can't pronounce the actual word. Is it masochism? Sado, masochism. I think it's ma- spelt wrong. Mac-ism. I think I spelt it wrong. Sado, mac. Oh, <laughs> Is it sado or pseudo? Sado, sado masochism. There we, I did it. There you go. Sado masochism. <laughs> We got the... So Albert Fish develops sadomax... Fuck! <laughs> you were so close. Wow. <laughs> no, don't make me say it again. Sadomasochism. Sadomasochism. Albert Fish develops that. And he would get erections while the boys were being beaten and beating each wow, other. how old was he? <coughs> he... Well, he's five when he's dropped at the orphanage. Right. And I think he's 11. It's so... Okay, we'll we'll get there. To answer your question, we'll get there. So this only leads the boys to bully him more. However, he gets pleasure from being beaten. So it's like this vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. He becomes a bedwetter and frequently tries to escape the orphanage to the surprise of fucking no one. 
However, I was always caught and taken back. So Fisher's been quoted as remarking that I was there till I was nearly nine. So this is between nine and five when he's okay. getting erections at children Jesus. being beaten. That's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. So in 1880, Fisher's mother gets a government job and actually goes to pick Albert up. Mm -hmm. um, however, at this stage, the damage is pretty much done. And in 1882, he develops a relationship with a telegraph boy who introduces him to two words that I tried to pronounce and didn't even bother writing Here down because there was just no way that I was going to be able to figure out how to pronounce these. But basically, he developed two disorders where you eat your own or someone else's feces and you drink urine. Oh. So he begins to spend time at local baths where he'd watch boys younger than him undress. And he also begins to write obscene letters, which he sends to women that he finds in classified ads. So like women, single women, like seeking boyfriend, he would like write these horrible obscene letters to them. Mm. He drops out of school at age 15, so he's not even, like, a legal adult and before this has already shit. happened. Wow. And in 1890, the Fish family moved to the Big Apple, where Fish claims he becomes a male prostitute and begins raping young boys. So, mm. just going to make a little footnote here. Our friend Albert Fish is a bit like our other friend, H.H. H. Holmes, where everything's a bit kind of, like, murky of... He said he did a lot of shit, but there's not a lot of proof to back up most of what he said he's done. Okay. So, in 1898, his mother arranges a marriage, which I didn't even know was like a thing in America. Well, that's, yeah, very... Yeah. Well, that's very to Amish. Anna Mary Hoffman, who's eight years his junior, so she's 20 because he's 28 at this stage. That's kind of gross. They have six kids together. Throughout the years of 1898, Fish works as a house painter and alleges that he continues to molest children throughout this whole time. He is known as having recounted taking a lover to a waxworks museum where he becomes enamoured with a bisection of a penis and this is where his real obsession with sexual mutilation begins. So in 1903, he's sentenced to prison for the first time for grand larceny. So he goes to prison for a short stint. And in 1910 is where... His whole thing really kind of kicks into gear. So Fish meets intellectually disabled 19-year-old Thomas Kedden while he's working in Delaware. They begin a sadomasochistic relationship. Hey, I said it. Although it's not clear if it's actually consensual on the side of, on like Thomas's side. Right. After 10 days of the relationship, Fish takes Kedden to an old farmhouse where he begins to torture him over the course of two weeks. Fish eventually ties Kedden up and cuts off half his penis. Oh, Originally, his intention was that he was going to kill Thomas, cut up his body and take the parts home with him. But because it was so hot, he freaked out because he thought like the meat would spoil and someone would smell it and he'd get caught. Mm -hmm. So instead, he pours peroxide over the open wound, over the open wound, wound. wraps his severed penis in a Vaseline-covered handkerchief to okay. uh, stop the bleeding, I would assume. Uh -huh. Leaves him with $10, blows him a kiss, and fucks off. Wow. That's... Quote-unquote, taking the first train I could, could to get back home, never heard what become of him or tried to find out. However, one article I read referred to Kedden as Fisher's first victim and that he was stabbed to death. So, um, oh, not really sure 
again, it seems like it's a bit kind of like murky as to what he's actually done. Yeah. So in 1917, Fisher's wife runs off with John Straub, who was a handyman that had actually boarded with the family, and he's left as a single parent. So they've got six children. Um, it's noted at one point that she did actually come back and begged for a place to stay. Albert tells her that she can stay with them, but Loverboy has to hit the road, <laughs> Has to skedaddle. Um, they agree, but shortly after John, um, they find out that John has been hiding in the attic and Anna's been sneaking him food. So then Fish kicks them both out for good and he never sees her again. And I don't think his children ever see her again either. Oof. So it's really here that Albert Fish just loses any remaining Humanity. portion of being a normal human being. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been quoted as saying that when his wife left him, she took nearly every possession the family owned. He begins to have auditory hallucinations, which is like where you hear things basically. Yeah. And he once wrapped himself in a carpet saying that he was following the instructions of John the Apostle. Wow. Okay. When at the family summer house in Westchester, he would climb to the top of a mountain, shake his fist at the sky, and declare himself Christ before asking his children to hit his buttocks. Shaking his fist at the sky. Mm-hmm. So he's just up on a mountain. Going, Are you fucking sky? Fucking paddle me, kids. Paddle <laughs> me. I don't know. It's so weird. I try Same. not to think about it too much. Um, this is when... He also starts really experimenting with sexual self-mutilation at, at the time. A favorite practice of his was to embed needles into his groin and stomach. Oof. Another fun pastime Fish had was flogging himself with a nail-studded paddle. That's intense. A little bit. And kinky. It gets worse. So after his eventual arrest, x-rays revealed that Fish had at least 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region. Oh, shit. He would also insert wool doused with lighter fluid into his anus and set it on fire. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So he just kept these needles in him. Yeah. he like. Forever. I'm assuming some of them would have come out, but 29 of them he like put in there and they just never came out. Wow. Yeah. So, Fish has never thought to have physically or sexually abused his own children, but he did encourage them and their friends to paddle his buttocks with the same nail-studded paddle that he used to abuse himself. Gross. Can you imagine going over to your mate's house and he says, hey, yeah, I know this is really weird, but my dad just needs him to smack him on the ass with this paddle with nails hanging out of it. Like, are you down for that? Just real quick. Uh, he said it will feed us afterwards. It's all cool. Don't tell your parents about it. Yeah. And this is when he also starts to develop his growing obsession with cannibalism. He'd often prepare himself a meal consisting solely of raw meat, and he'd also sometimes serve it to his children. Oh, dude, come on. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, Fisher's eldest son becomes tired of his fuckery <laughs> and kicks him out. Wow. Fish then becomes a drifter and is arrested on multiple occasions for vagrancy and petty theft. Also, again, for sending obscene letters to women in classified ads. Uh, the contents of the letters, I mean, keeping in mind that this is the early yeah, very 1900s. The early. contents of the letters are so obscene, they are never published anywhere. Like, you can't find wow. them on the internet. And Fish, at this point, is admitted to a psychiatric hospital for, like, evaluation to make sure he's all G. Which, which he's certainly not. not. 
So by 1919, his obsession with torturing cannibalism had brought him to start contemplating murder. He begins to look for vulnerable children, such as intellectually disabled orphans or homeless black children. Um, in his mind, he thinks that no one's keeping track of these kids. No one's going to notice if they go. Which isn't too far from the truth at the time. Yeah. Probably. Fisher's also quoted as saying that sometimes he would pay other children to procure victims for him. He tortures, mutilates, and murders young children with his, quote, implements of hell, a meat cleaver, butcher knife, and a small handsaw. Yeah. So this is all super awful, but again, he's only ever actually been charged with three confirmed victims. Yeah, and we've established that old mate isn't all there. And none of these other things have ever had any verified actual proof, but he's confessed to molesting over 400 children. Yeah, that's the thing. It's... Like, he's confessed to it, but how... 400. Fuck. Yeah. If that's reality, then that's fucked up. That's a lot of children. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if you're molesting 400 children, you probably lose count after 50. Yeah, it gets to a certain point where... It where it's like, are you really... Are you counting yeah, how many... Yeah, you're not, like, keeping a chalkboard with a... Yeah. Yeah. He keeps a pad and pen with him at all times. Yeah. It so, by 1924, Fish has gone full cray-cray and he's suffering from actual full-on psychosis and he believes that God is commanding him to torture and murder children. Of course he is. Yeah, that's some Old Testament shit. Yeah, which isn't too far from the <laughs> truth. All the Old Testament. Uh, so, in July of 1924, he spots Beatrice Keel, an eight-year-old girl playing on her family farm. Fish attempts to lure her away, however, spotted by the mother and chased off. Fisher's next attempted victim is Cyril Quinn, a young boy that he has already allegedly been molesting. He offers Quinn lunch to lure him to the house. However, the boy flees once Fish reveals his weapons and manages okay. to get away. On July 15th, though, Fish is sadly successful in his first documented proven murder of Francis X. MacDonald. Francis is reported missing by his parents after he fails to return home after playing catch with his friends. A search begins and they find his body hanging by a tree in a wooden area near his house. He has been sexually assaulted and strangled with his own suspenders. The autopsy reports he also has multiple extensive lacerations on his legs and abdomen and his left hamstring has nearly been completely stripped of flesh. Oh, no. Yeah. That's not Fish also later admitted that he had planned to castrate the boy. Mm. Yeah. In 1927, however, is when he gets his name of the Brooklyn Vampire when he abducts four-year-old Billy Gaffney while he's playing hide-and-seek with his three-year-old friend Billy Beaton and Beaton's 12-year-old brother. So you've got a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a 12-year-old. That's just too young. Yeah. When um, Billy Beaton... The friend is asked what happened to Gaffney. He said that the boogeyman took him. Oh, dude. Fish takes Gaffney to a house at um, Riker Avenue, Riker Avenue dumps and holds him captive there until the next day um, when he returns at 2 p.m. and tortures him to death. He dismembers the head, arms, and the legs below the knees, puts the part in weighted sacks, and throws them in nearby ponds. He then cannibalizes the thighs and torso over the next four days. There's a really long letter that Fish actually writes about the full-on details of the murder and what happened. It's really awful, and it's so I'm not reading it. It's also really long, so I'm not reading it for that reason as well. 
Um, basically, he goes into like full on detail about how and how he cooks parts of Gaffney and what parts of him he cooks. He talks about the gravy he cooks oh, it with. Oh, um, and he also notes at one point that he drinks Gaffney's blood after cutting open his stomach. So that's how he becomes the, the Brooklyn vampire. Oh, right. Yeah. God, um, that is fucking gruesome. Also, the person who fucking named him that. <coughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Your first reaction is, hmm, that's kind of what a vampire would do. Well, I mean, it is in the. Let's name him sense. the Brooklyn Vampire. But yeah, it's that's um too cool of a you, name. If you are someone who's like more interested in this case, the full letter is um, if you just Google. Albert Fish, he's the first Wikipedia page that comes up and they publish the full letter if you want to read it. It's pretty horrible. So do you know roughly how long the letter is? Like, it's very, very long. Like, it's a couple of typed paragraphs long. Shit. Like, he goes into full detail about what parts he does and how he cooks parts of it as bacon. And then he it's not nice. That sounds horrible. Yeah. So, Fish's most infamous case, which is the one he's kind of the most known for, Mm -hmm. is Grace Budd. So, in 1928, Fish answers an ad seeking work for an 18-year-old, Edward Budd. The family is struggling financially, and young Edward is just trying to help his family by finding some work so he can, you know, help take care of some of the household expenses. Fish answers the ad and shows up at the Budd house, betraying himself as an average, sweet, at this stage, 58-year-old man looking for help around the house. He calls himself Frank Howard and offers them... $15 a week for Edward's help, which, as usual, I converted, and it's about roughly $222 a week. Shit. Which is not a bad amount of spare cash if you're really sort of struggling to make ends meet. On the side, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, the the family, they can't believe their luck. They happily agree, and Fish plans to return to the house a few days later to collect Edward. Obviously, his real plan is to tie him up, torture him, mutilate him, leave him to bleed out, and then butcher and eat him. Mm. So Not good. Yeah. So after a few days, Fish doesn't return to the Bud house, and he actually sends them a handwritten letter apologizing for essentially ghosting them. And then um, he shows up a few days later and sees the younger sister, Grace Bud, who hadn't been there the first time he'd gone to the house. Right. He becomes obsessed with her, changing his intended victim from Edward to Grace. So... When he returns on June 3rd, bringing a gift of pot cheese and strawberries, which he claimed came from his farm, he said he would hire Edward but had to pick him up later that day as he had to attend his sister's birthday party. So he makes up a story basically that his niece is having a birthday party and it's a younger girl like Grace and he sort of suggests like, why don't I take Uh, Grace to the birthday party that my niece is having and And because he's this like lovely old man who's come from heaven to rescue the family the mum and dad go yeah of course that sounds like a nice treat for our guy we don't know yeah but they're probably thinking as well like our young daughter they're obviously a poor family thinking like it'll be the opportunity for her to meet people her age and like have fun yeah, have some friends, maybe have a little bit of like a taste of a luxury that, like a luxury that she wouldn't have normally had. Um, sadly, Grace never returns home. Mm. Um, so in 1930, another man named Charles Edward Pope is actually accused 
of her disappearance and he's actually tried for the crime and found wow. not guilty. Shit. Um, but he spends a total of 108 days in jail for it. The investigation carries on with absolutely no leads for five years. Why Fish is not the first fucking suspect. Yeah. The, like, he literally told the parents that he was taking her somewhere mm, mm-hmm. and she disappears. And that's not a red flag to say, oh, maybe it was him. Yeah. Um, oh, so the only, the only way that they catch him is in 1934, a mysterious letter shows up to the Bud's house. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not reading the whole thing because A, again, it's really fucking long. And B, it's really it's fucking gross. awful. So basically, he starts this rambling letter telling this weird story about a friend of his that worked on a boat, worked as a deckhand on, on a ship. They went to China and they went to the pub and got drunk. And by the time they got back to the, the port, the boat was gone. So they're stranded in China and there was a famine. So people were selling and eating children. And his friend becomes addicted to eating children and then comes back to America and tells him, Albert Fish, about how great it is to eat children. That's how the letter starts. Um, The one part I will quote verbatim, just because it's kind of so awful that you need to hear it, is sort of comes from the middle portion of the letter. She says, on Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406W 15th Street, brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. Fuck, dude. So he sends this to the family of this girl who's been missing for five years at this stage. He then basically brags about how, like, what he did. Like, he explains that he told her, he took her to this house told her to go pick flowers, went upstairs, took his clothes off so he wouldn't get blood on it, then called her up and, like, strangles and eats her. Um, And he brags about how it takes him nine days to eat all of her and, like, he roasted her buttocks and it's really horrible. That's so fucking horrible. But he takes the time at the end of the letter to rape, to um, brag about how he didn't rape her even though he could have and that she died a virgin. Like, it's As just that's any so awful. Yeah. Like, <coughs> yeah. So, Fish is actually caught and traced from this letter. Even though the letter was completely anonymous, the envelope it's in is marked with an emblem reading NYPCBA, which is short for New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. So, a janitor at this place explains that he'd taken some stationery from the company shortly before leaving and had left it in his apartment in which Fish now lives. Ah, shit. Yeah. So police go and arrest Fish and he basically can't confess quick enough. Like he just can't shut up about. It seems like it from the letters that he's he sending. Yeah. He's he very makes proud zero of what attempts he does. to deny the murders, and he actually <clears throat> explains to them that he had originally planned on killing and eating Edward, not Grace. Yeah. Like, to make it weird, and also Fuck. at the time he confesses to his previous murders of McDonald and Gaffney. So, it's noted during his trial that Fish was somewhat of a psychiatric marvel, because no single person that had ever been documented before had displayed so many sexual abnormalities and, like, weird quirks that he I can imagine. At a time like that, it'd be so bizarre. Yeah. 
Um, so psychiatrists and Fisher's defense all agree that he's absolutely mad. Yeah. The jury, however, after an hour of delegation, finds him sane and guilty and he's sentenced to death by the electric chair. The trial lasts for a total of 10 days and Fish is actually the one that pleads insanity. Right. Though he's unhappy with the sentence, he's thrilled with the notion of being electrocuted to death and even thanks the judge for it. Wow. On January 16th, 1936, the sentence is carried out at Sing Sing Prison, where Fish had previously been incarcerated way, way back wow, for okay. grand lasting. So he's come full go. circle. His last words before the switch were pulled were, were reported as, I don't even know why I'm here. Buddy, really? You don't know why you're there? <laughs> you don't have a, mm, no ideas? Basic human knowledge is that you shouldn't eat children. Yeah. Or molest them, or torture them, or kill them. You're there All because of the above. you can't be left alive. So it actually takes two attempts to kill him. Because huh. he initially short-circuits the chair because of all the metal needles left inside of him. Oh, shit. Yeah. Right. So they have to, like, jolt him twice. Because the first time they try and do it, it's not enough because the needle short circuits the, the machine. That's really fucking yeah. intense. But he is finally pronounced dead at 11.06pm and buried at the prison cemetery. And that, my friends, is the incredibly awful story of Albert Fish. That is intense. I will say one thing for Albert Fish. The dude has a fantastic bowler hat. Like, when you look up his photos of when he's younger, he has the most suave-looking bowler hat I have ever seen in my entire life. It's always, like, in the early and an 1900s. amazing moustache as well. Yeah, that's Great moustache. Early 1900s, those murderers, man. Oh, those men had some good moustaches. Yeah. Man, could they murder people, but yeah. they took care of their facial hair. It's sad that they were murderers because they had some great facial hair. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, it's pretty horrible. Again, if you are someone who has a strong stomach and if you do, if you are interested, both of the letters that he wrote are available. They're f- published full verbatim on mm. his Wikipedia page. I think it's just interesting to see into the mind of someone who is so despicable like that. And at a time like that too, it's so crazy. Yeah. And he just like the, I'm just going to pull up the letter and just read a part, not the awful part. I'm just going to read a little bit of the first part where he's rambling because just, it's so strange. And the way he writes it is just so odd. Right. Um, If I can find it. Because I think you were quoting something before and it sounded not very coherent like the way he was writing it was it was missing a few letters and seemed frantic really yeah so the letter reads the first part my dear mrs bud in 1894 a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer tacoma captain john davis they sailed from san francisco to hong kong china on arriving there he and two others went ashore and got drunk when they returned the boat was gone at that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. 
You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, bought the highest price. John said, John stayed there and stayed is spelled S-T-A-I-D. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, 17111, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. So, yeah, I don't want to get into yeah, that part. It's that... Yeah. Wow. And then he goes on about how his friend... Uh, so, he told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. And then he goes into the part about... So, what, what was the year that he dated when he's talking about China? Uh, his friend went to China in 1894. Fucking hell. That's... Because you never really hear about... I th- it's not really discussed about the th- like things in in China pre nineteen hundreds. Yeah, it's mostly like the 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 u- the um the uniting of the states of America that we kind of learn about yeah. from that kind of brink onwards. That's fucked up that China yeah. was in a place like that. Well, whether or not that is true. Mm, yeah. Um, like it is noted. <clears throat> I read on one of the articles that it is noted that it was correct that China was in famine at that point, but whether or not butchers yeah. were really bringing out like the corpses of children and being like, what part would you like? Like that just, I don't know. But can you imagine being the family member that opened that letter Yeah, just. and you're reading this like nonsensical letter being like, what the fuck? And then it gets to the part where you're like, oh, and by the way, I, I ate, ate your, daughter. your daughter. That is just messed up. up. He was messed up. Up to go one further and to write the letter to a, a family and tell them exactly after what five you, years when they've possibly as well just started just to like heal the wounds that have obviously come from your five years young daughter time. just disappearing without a trace. Think about that. Yeah. We've, we've been together for four years, that's one year longer than that's our relationship. Four years too many. Yeah. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit! Wow, all right. Rude. Oh, wine is so good. Yeah, but that is um, that is Albert Fish. If you are interested in reading the full letters, they are awful. They are on the Wikipedia page. Just bracing yourself because they're. Yep. They're horrific. They're really, really not good. Yeah. Especially the one. The one about Grace is awful because she's this like. There's a photo of her and she's just this beautiful little cherubic. Baby, well, she was a baby. Yeah, she was She's a little a tiny toddler. baby. Yeah, but um, the letter about the boy that he murders is is so awful, mainly because it goes into so much detail about. What it's like does. a re- it's like a Julia Child's fucking cookbook, but for child flesh. It's so strange. I wonder. I just wonder how you make the leap to go. F- like it's one thing to murder someone, but it's another thing to. To revert to cannibalism. Yeah, he's a weird dude. Weird dude. And and it's another. It's one thing for to to for uh, as a use of like survival. Like there was that. I can't remember the name of the plane crash, but that that crash where. Um, the one in the Andes. Yeah, and they had to resort to cannibalism yeah. to stay alive, and it actually saved their lives. 
Um, yeah, but that was like... But to make that, the conscious choice yeah. to be like, I have a choice to not do this or do this. And this this yeah. step to make that, like, that's just fucking... Yeah, it's not, it's not kosher. Insane. Not kosher. Not no. cool. All right, well, let's ki- let's keep this cannibal. Let's keep the awful train, train going. rolling. Choo-choo, motherfuckers. So, as I mentioned before, I will be talking about Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal killer. You, you. So, Jeffrey Dahmer was a very, like, one of, probably one of the most notorious cannibalistic killers in the history of, like, American serial killers. Yeah, he's again one of those names that just pop you, up. You've heard yeah, everywhere. You've heard everywhere. Uh, yeah, it's, it, he's, I think, legitimately one of the most notorious cannibal killers. Mm, probably. So, I want to get into a bit of his early life. So, Jeffrey Dahmer was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the 21st of May in 1960, to parents Lionel and Joyce Dahmer. His mother described him as a beautiful and normal child, but his teachers saw him in a much different light. His first grade teacher wondered and pondered if Jeffrey was neglected at home and kind of noted him as a reserved and quiet child in his report card. And it's thought that supposedly his parents actually didn't spend a lot of time with him. Right. So there's different sources. Some say that um, Dharma's parents were extremely uh, and uncritically fond of him as an infant and a toddler, some say that they were completely neglecting him. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, although his mother was known to be tense, greedy, and both for attention and pity, they're an argumentative with her husband and their neighbours. So, this led people to think that with the issues that his parents had with each other, uh, it often led to him being neglected. So, it's it's really he said, she said in that respect. But when he was young, Jeffrey's father was earning a college degree in chemistry and his mother was often bedridden while recovering from illnesses. It's not necessarily um, specified what she was suffering from. Just like chronic, yeah. ongoing stuff. She she was a hypochondriac who suffered from depression. Right. She demanded okay. constant attention. Right. So it was a bit probably like... um A lot of mental... M- Munchhausen's? Is that what it's called? Where you kind of fake illnesses to... Ooh, that's an interesting term. Munchhausen. I'm, I could be really <coughs> pronouncing that incorrectly. So reportedly she worked herself into a state of anxiety over trivial matters with her husband to, to appease her husband. And she even attempted suicide with Equinil. So consequently it's thought neither parent devoted much time to their son unfortunately Jeffrey's parents had a um, tumultuous marriage which he describes himself as extreme tension from constant arguing at home but there was no doubt that both of his parents loved him and did good by him at age 6 his parents uh, gave him a baby brother and gave him the opportunity to name his baby brother because they were worried that he how he would react to the to the thought of having a younger sibling yeah he names him david is this just quickly is this one of the first people we've covered on the podcast that doesn't have a really fucked up childhood i think uh, it may be i mean yeah uh, yeah i think it's probably the first one who has who's had a no yeah i guess so i mean son of sam had one supported supportive family member until 
she passed away. I guess so, in a, in a sense of like, he had two re- relatively normal parents. Yeah. They 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 weren't very they were very abusive to each other in some sense, but you know you know. Yeah. Also, just a side note: if you can hear purring in the microphone, it's because this kitten has opted to basically come and sit on my neck. <laughs> so if you can if you can hear her, that's why. And little fur rustling up against the microphone. So the Dharmas moved a few times before settling in Bath, Ohio in 1968. A red flag in Dharma's future violence that would follow him in his later life was his obsession with animal bones and how they would fit together. This was at the age of four. Oh. It's so weird, though, because I guess things like that at such a young age, it probably at the time didn't seem malicious at all well here's here's the thing uh he one day he was cleaning out uh, animal remains from underneath the house with his dad who said that jeffrey was reportedly oddly thrilled by the sound of bones dropping to the metal bucket that's a bit weird to go on um a little bit later at the age of 10, over dinner, Jeffrey asked his, his dad what would happen if he placed chicken bones in bleach. Now, because Jeffrey's dad is a chemist, he takes this as... He's interested, he's in, interested in chemistry. And he has a Aww, scientific... Bless. Uh, scientific curiosity. But during this time and cleaning up the, from the bones underneath the house, Jeffrey builds up a collection of animal carcasses and bones... So what he would do was he would go uh, collecting bones in ditches and streets. He would look for roadkill and he would dismember the bodies in, behind his house in a little wooded area and stored various body parts in the family woodshed. On occasion, one occasion, sorry, Jeffrey decapitated the corpse of a dog before nailing its body to a tree. Jesus. How old is he? He's like nine at this This was stage? This was between the ages of four to ten. Jesus so Christ. This is before he was asking his dad about the chicken bones. So because Jeffrey asked him about the chicken bone, he decided to take the opportunity to teach Jeffrey the proper way to clean and preserve his collection, so his animal corpse collections. Jesus. And he thought this was, you know, perfectly normal. I mean, some kids have a fascination with things like taxidermy, whatever. And I guess <coughs> when they're that young, your, and first, your first instinct isn't that they're a mass murderer and it's the late 60s early 70s so it's a a very different time we now move on to the age of 14 jeffrey later admitted that during the age of 14 that's when he began experiencing sexual compulsions he desired not girls but boys and the sexual fantasies he often have had involved submission violence and death he began drinking as a teenager to uh, to uh, as an attempt to suppress his urges and never brought this disturbing these disturbing thoughts up to anyone around him. At the age of 16, he began to fantasize about raping a jogger he saw regularly and planned on attacking him one day. So, one day Jeffrey gets a baseball bat. He lies waiting in the bushes alongside the man's regular route. However, the man never shows up. And Jeffrey never attempts to carry this uh, this attack out ever again. Wow. Can you imagine, like, 
being that jogger. jogger. Yeah. Like if you heard this story and you thought about like, like obviously, yeah, I run that route. And there was that one day where, you know, yeah. little Lucy was sick, so I couldn't go jogging. And oh my gosh. It's one of those things. It's like, I, I imagine people who must have lived in New York during 9-11 who might have like spent a, a couple of weeks away and then they're yeah. away and they're looking at the news thinking, fuck. Or people who worked in the building and took sick leave. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, it's it's what it's one of those things that is so so Messed horrible and bizarre about. to think about. That yeah. If you made one little decision differently, well, it's that whole butterfly effect thing. It is, and I, the butterfly effect is so interesting. One tiny change makes so much difference. That's why the idea of alternate realities is so in- intriguing. Mm. Like, what if you did make this decision differently? Anyway, to continue, at Revere High School, most of Jeffrey's classmates saw him as an outcast, and the few friends that he did have started to grow concerned with his heavy drinking. So he would often smuggle beer and other hard liquors into school through the lining of his army fatigue jacket. His his grades went from average to spiraling downward, along with his drinking spike hitting an all-time low in 1977. So his grades were steadily declining. In school, he briefly played clarinet in band, and he even played tennis for a while. Overall, his teachers saw him as a quiet and polite kid, although very awkward and failing miserably. Mm. He regularly amused his classmates by staging pranks, like faking seizures, knocking things over, and making loud, obnoxious noises. And his pranks were so popular that committing similar behavior behavior was often referred to as doing a dharma. Oh, that's interesting. That has an entirely new meaning now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so by the end of high school, dharma's parents, their, their troubled marriage finally comes to an end after an unsuccessful attempt at counseling. In early 1978... Lionel, his father, moves out of the house and Dharma graduates in May the same year. A week after his graduation, Dharma would commit his first murder after picking up a hitchhiker. Wow, so I wonder if it was like the schedule of school was the only thing that sort of kept him in That or his, his parents' marriage? Yeah. Because it comes to the shambles just before his graduation. Yeah. So it could be a lot of things. But we have a we have a... Uh, you'll find this very interesting. Okay. We have a very interesting revelation later on Ooh, okay. that you will be like, oh, fuck, here we go. Here's the connection. Here we go. So, 18-year-old hitchhiker Stephen Mark Hicks was on his way to a rock concert when Dharma lured him back to his house to hang out and drink, have a few beers after the show. Mm. By now, Dharma was living alone in his parents' house because his mother had moved out with his younger brother and his father was living at a local motel, obviously due to the split, the the breakup. Hicks and Dharma spent a few hours listening to music and drinking together. When Hicks finally gets ready to start leaving, Dharma doesn't want him to leave. So, he grabs a 10-pound dumbbell and strikes him over the head with said dumbbell. Knocking him unconscious, then continuing to strangle young Hicks until he is dead. 
Dharma proceeds to masturbate over his dead corpse, moves him to a crawl space underneath the house, and dissects his body before burying it in shallow graves. Right. Several weeks later... That's a huge escalation. A huge escalation. nothing to, like... It's his first real crime. He has... He was... He had thoughts of rape and and Mm. death and dismemberment, but he, he doesn't go through with it until he does. Yeah, crazy. A week after graduation... So several weeks later, Dharma unearths Hicks' dead body. He pairs the flesh from the bones and dissolves it in acid. And what he would do with... This is what he would do with most of his course. He would dissolve the flesh in acid. He would get the bones that he's now separated from the flesh uh, and wrap them in a cloth and beat them with a sledgehammer, scatter the, the bone splinters all throughout the wooded area behind his house. Right, okay. So a short, a short time later, Dharma's father visits his son and learns that he's living alone in the house. So he decides to move back in with his son and convinces him to enroll into college. Dharma spends three months at Ohio State University before dropping out. And that's a mood. Mm. That's a hard mood. Yeah. I mean, maybe not a mood as in... Killing people. No, but that's a mood as in... Being uh, a maybe university dropout, I yeah. can relate. So, 1979. At his father's behest, Dharma joins the US Army, serving Ooh. as a combat medic in Germany. There is the revelation. There we go. I mean, well... Yes and no. I think we've established he was fucking mental before Yeah, that. but I mean, that's... I mean, it's a correlation yeah. between it's a all weird, of them. It's a weird thing that keeps popping yeah. up. The only thing you can't necessarily explain is is the, the sudden urges that he I gets. I just can't get over how big of an... Like, so many of the people that we cover, it's like small... It's like killing animals, burning up. houses. Yeah, this is just like we went straight yeah. to murder and dismemberment. And there's no real clear signs no. to lead up to it. Like Nothing. Nothing. There's no hard childhood. The the only thing that could possibly explain it is the history of mental illness in the family. We've established that his mother's a hypochondriac who yeah. suffers from depression and anxiety. Yeah, no, that's true. And an early onset alcoholism. Mm. So yeah, because he started drinking really early, really young, and and okay. was not just All drinking right. was. Right excessively drinking yeah at a very young age because that really could um stunt your development as well yes, exactly. like your mental development all right keep going keep going i'm intrigued so um his performance in in the army is actually deteriorated deteriorated after a while due to his excessive drinking and he's honorably discharged in march of 1981 so three years later after joining at least two soldiers later attested that Dharma raped them while in the service. Oh, Jesus. One repeated repetitively over the course of 17 months, and the other once after Dharma drugged him. Fuck. Yeah. This is a direct quote from Jeffrey Dharma that I want to read out. And I quote, The only motive that there ever was to completely control a person... A person I found physically attractive. 
and keep them with me as long as possible, even if it meant just keeping a part of them. Uh, End quote. That was the thing. He would often keep mementos of all of these victims, and there were uh, quite a few victims. I think he, he had a memento for each one of them. Jesus. So following his honorable discharge, Dharma returns to Ohio for a very brief time. He is shortly arrested afterwards for disorderly conduct, which prompts his father to arrange for Dharma to move to Wisconsin, uh, to live with his grandmother within Wisconsin. While his alcoholism grows, he is later then arrested again for indecent exposure, and then once more in 1880, uh, 1986, sorry, he is arrested for uh, after two boys accuse him of masturbating in front of them. We then move to September the next of the next year, 1987. Dharma takes his second victim, Stephen Tuomi. According to Dharma, he has no recollection of killing Tuomi. They had checked into a hotel room together, decided to drink, and when Dharma woke up in the morning, he discovers Tuomi's dead body with his blood on his hands. Dharma bought a large suitcase to transport transport Tuami's remains to his grandmother's basement where he dismembers and masturbates over the corpse before disposing the remains. Jesus. He severs the head. Imagine smuggling that out of a hotel room. Successfully. But that would also be, like, low-key terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Fuck. And it's interesting because we... That's something that's often brought up with certain serial killers as they have this delusional state where whether yeah. or not it's them ad- om- om- omitting to their guilt or their crimes just saying oh I had no idea what was going on I just did it yeah like it's oh like, I blacked out yeah. yeah but is it an actual thing that they psychologically go through that's I don't know I guess we're not serial killers so we won't know no we'll never know so he severs the head, arms, legs, and torso, then fillets the bones from the body before cutting the flesh into small pieces, easy enough to handle. Dharma places the flesh inside plastic garbage bags, wraps the bones in a sheet, and pounds them into splinters with a sledgehammer, similar to his last murder. Mm. The entire dismemberment process takes approximately two hours to complete. Then he disposes of all of Tuami's reins, excluding the severed head which he then throws into the trash. Jesus. Only after Dharma killed his another two victims, his grandmother's in at his grandmother's house, she grows tired of his her grandson's late drunken nights, and while she has no knowledge of his murderous activities, she forces him still to move out of the premises in 1988. Okay. So I believe the two victims that. Uh, that that is really being, being referred to is fourteen year old Native American male prostitute James Doxtator. So Dharma reportedly led the youth to his home with an offer of fifty dollars to pose for na- nude pictures, mm-hmm. murders him in a similar fashion, and disposes of his body in a similar fa- similar fashion. The other man was twenty two year old bisexual Richard Guerrero, which uh, he met outside of a gay bar called the Phoenix. And similar premise, Dharma lures Guerrero to his grandmother's residence. And although the incentive on this occasion was $50 to simply spend the remainder of the night with him, mm. he didn't know that 
Yeah, of course. That was his intention. Yeah. So that's September 1989. Dharma had an encounter with the 13-year-old Laotian boy, which related resulted sorry in charges of sexual exploitation and second-degree sexual assault for Dharma. Ooh, okay. He pleads guilty, claiming the boy had appeared much older than he was. Yeah. While awaiting sentencing for his sexual assault, Dharma again puts his grandmother's basement to gruesome use. March 1989, he lures, drugs, strangles, sodomizes, photographs, and dismembers, then disposes of young Anthony Sears, an aspiring model. So they meet at a gay bar on March 25th, 1989. According to Darmelon's particular occasion, he was not looking to commit a crime. However, shortly before closing time that evening, Sears, and I quote, just started talking to me. Right. Dharma lures Sears back to his grandma's house where he commits uh, the crimes after engaging in oral sex with each other. But, uh, sorry, before. After, yeah, after, sorry. Yeah. According to Dharma, he found Sears exceptionally attractive. And Sears was the first victim from whom he permanently retained any body parts. He he preserved Sears' head and his genitalia in acetone and stores them in his work locker. When he later moved to a different address later that following year, he took the remains with him. No. Yeah, it's not good. At his trial for child molestation in May 1989, Dharma seemed and gave off the persona of being remorseful and penitent, arguing eloquently in his own defense about how he had seen the errors of his ways and was willing to make a turning point in his life after his arrest. A bullshit. A bullshit. His defense, defense counsel argues that he needs treatment, not incarceration, and the judge agrees handing down a one-year prison sentence on day release, allowing Dharma to work at his day, his job during the day and return to prison at night, as well as a five-year okay. probation pro- probationary sentence. So years later, in an interview with CNN, Lionel Dharma, his father, said that he wrote a letter to the court that issued the sentence requesting that psychological help be given to his son before his parole. Which is probably a good call. On a Dad's, very good call. Dad's yeah. However, Jeffrey Dahmer was granted an early release by the judge after serving only 10 months of his sentence. He briefly lives with his grandmother following his release, during which time he doesn't appear to have added to his body count before moving back to his own apartment. Over the following two years, Dahmer's victim count would accelerate from 4 to 17. Whoa. He develops rituals as he progresses, experimenting chemical means of disposing um, human bodies and begins to experiment with consuming the flesh of his victims. He also begins to attempt crude lobotomies. So he would drill into his victims' skulls while they were still alive and inject them with muriatic acid, which is hydrochloric acid. And hydrochloric acid is classified as a strongly acidic uh, substance that can attack the skin over wide composition range since the hydrogen chloride completely disassociates uh, into an uh, aqueous solution. So he's melting their brains from within. Can you just describe my face right now? Kind of like 
that one meme of the little girl in the back seat who's kind of like furrowing her brow. Doesn't want to go to Disneyland. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. Kind of like that. <laughs> it's so bad. It's very bad. What did he think he was going to like achieve? Or was it just like a torture thing? I think it was just a, a, a experimentation thing. Right. I think he wanted to keep them alive, but completely lobotomize them. He so he was very careful to select uh, victims on the fringes of society, much like Albert Fish. Yeah. Uh, so they were often uh, vagrant or borderline criminal individuals, making the disappearances less noticeable and reducing yeah. the likelihood of his capture. So he he was in a relatively African American area, Commun- right? And okay. he was a white male. So yeah. a lot of his victims, in turn, ended up being African American males, due to their disappearancing disappearances. Not yeah, really being, no one gave a fuck. No one gave I a mean, shit. Apparently, no one cares no. now either. And as I go on, you it, it's so fucking bizarre how much leeway he gets. Yeah, they, no one gives a shit. So as the murders pile up, Dharma is still unsatisfied. He, another quote to give him, and I quote, he says, I was completely swept along with my own compulsion. I don't know how else to put it. It didn't satisfy me completely, so maybe I was thinking, maybe another one will. Maybe this one will. And the numbers started growing and growing and just got out of control, as you can, as you can see. Jesus. End quote. So he was very coherent in his sickness. Much like Ed Yeah, Kemper. very self-aware. He knew that he had an, an illness. An illness. On May 27, 1991, Dharma's neighbor, Sandra Smith, calls the police to report that an Asian boy is running around the streets naked. When police arrived, the boy was incoherent and they accepted the word of Dharma, a white man in a largely poor African-American community, that the boy was his 19-year-old lover. In reality... This boy was fourteen year old, was fourteen years old, and was the brother of the Laotian teen Dharma had molested three years earlier. Right. The police escort Dharma and the boy home, clearly not wishing to become embroiled with a homosexual dis- domestic disturbance. Yeah, just like don't give a yeah. single fuck. They took only a c- cursory look around before leaving. Once police leave the scene, also oh, they went in his apartment. Yeah, they went inside. Jesus, they, as, a, as a as a courtesy look. Just to be like, yeah, we look inside. Once police leave the scene, Dharma proceeds to kill the boy and disposes of his corpse. Had the police conducted even a basic search, they would have found the body of Dharma's 12th victim, Tony Hughes. That's fucked up. He would go on to kill four more men before being arrested on July 22nd, 1991. And it's like both those, all those four of those men would have been saved if exactly. they had done their job. Yep. <sighs> so Dharma's killing spree ends during this date when he's arrested, July 22nd, 1991. That day, two Milwaukee police officers pick up Tracy Edwards, a 32-year-old African-American man who was wandering the streets with a handcuff dangling from his wrist. Right. They investigate the man's claim that a weird dude had drugged and restrained him. 
they arrive at Dahmer's apartment where he calmly offers to get the keys for the handcuffs. Edwards claims that the knife Dahmer had threatened him with was in the bedroom. So police decide to uh, oblige Edwards and corroborate the story when they notice Polaroids all around the apartment of dismembered body parts. Oh, Jesus. And dismembered bodies lying around. Dharma was, is subdued, subdued by officers and subsequently they search uh, the apartment revealing that a head was in the re- re- refrigerator, three more in the freezer and a, and a whole fuckload of other messed up shit. Oh, my God. Including preserved skulls, jars containing genitalia, and an extensive gallery of Polaroid photographs of his victims. Oh my god. Dharma's refrigerator and polygraph photos became inextricably associated with his notorious killing spree, so they all connect the dots. Yeah. Jeffrey Dharma's trial begins in January of the next year, 1992. So given that the, that the majority of Dharma's victims were African-American, they were considerable racial tensions, and so strict precautions were taken to for some reason, protect Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, because that's what we need to do. We need to protect the I serial I guess if you killer. want to incarcerate him, you don't yeah, want him to die. Yeah, you don't want him to get yeah. murdered if you want to put him in jail. So they put an eight-foot barrier of bulletproof glass separating him from the gallery. Right. The inclusion of only one African-American on the jury provoked further unrest, but was ultimately contained and short-lived. Lionel Dahmer and his second wife attends the trial throughout. Dharma initially pleaded not guilty to all charges despite having confessed to the killings during despite four heads being found in and his confessing house. to during the police interrogation. He eventually changed his plea to guilty by virtue of insanity. His defense then offered the gruesome details of his behavior as proof that only someone in someone insane could commit such terrible acts. In a later interview, Dharma would say it's hard for me to believe that a human being could have done what I've done, but I know that I did it. Jesus. The jury decides that they believe the prosecution's assertion that Dharma was fully aware of his acts, um, decide that his acts were evil, and that he was fully coherent in choosing to commit them. So on February 15, 1992, they return after approximately a 10-hour deliberation to find him guilty, but sane on all counts. How do you even? How does that take 10 hours? How is that not like a three-second job? Like, just, yeah, we no, found no, this guy's, heads in his house. This guy's in. This guy's very sane, and he just did a very bad thing. Uh, so he is sentenced to fifteen consecutive life terms in prison, with a sixteenth term tacked on in May. I have another quote from Dharma, and I quote: "It is now over. This has never been a case of trying to get free." I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world that I did what I did, but not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. I knew I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness and now I have some peace. I know how much harm I have caused. Thank God there will be no more harm that I can do. I own, I believe that only the Lord Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. I ask for no consideration. Reportedly, That's a bit of a backflip. Yeah. After pleading not guilty. Right. So, reportedly, Dharma is well suited to prison life. 
initially he was kept apart from the general population, but soon after his uh, returns is thwarted yeah. into a regular prison life. Um, eventually convince authorities to allow him to integrate into more uh, general areas of the prison. Yeah. And he finds religion in the form of books and photos sent to him by his father. He is then granted permission by the Colombian Columbia Correctional Institution to be baptized by a local pastor. Okay. November 28, 1940, 1994. Sorry. In accordance with his inclusion in regular work details, Dharma was assigned to work with two other convicted murderers, Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver. So they had been left alone to complete their tasks. Guards returned to find that Scarver had brutally beaten both men with a metal bar from the prison weight room. Dharma's pronounced dead after approximately one hour, and Anderson succumbs to his injuries a few days later. Oh, shit. In 2005, Christopher Scarver speaks with the New York Post about his reasons for killing Dharma. Scarver alleges that he was not only disturbed by Dharma's crimes, but by a habit Dharma had developed of fashioning severed limbs from prison food to antagonize other inmates. After he'd been taunted by Dharma and Anderson during um, their work detail, Scarver said that he confronted Dharma about his crimes before beating the two men to death. He Jesus. also claims that the prison guards fully allowed the murders to happen. Well, I mean, I... Yeah, I... Wouldn't be surprised. Wouldn't be surprised one little bit. Uh... In Dharma's will, he had requested upon his death that his body be cremated as soon as possible. But some medical researchers wanted his brain to be preserved so it could be studied. Fair call. Fair call. Lionel Dharma wanted to respect his son's wishes and cremate all of his remains, all the remains of his son. His mother felt his brain should go to research. The two parents went to court and a judge sided with Lionel. No way. Over the use of his brain. So after a year, Dharma's body was released from being held as evidence and the remains were cremated as they had been requested. Wow. In August 2012, nearly two decades after his death, it was reported that his childhood home in Bath, Ohio, where he committed his first murder in 1978 uh, and buried his victim's remains in, was now on the market. Jesus. Here's the fucked up thing. The owner, musician Chris Butler... Yeah. Uh, just what the fuck states that the property would make a great home as long as the buyer could get past the horror factor. Yeah. If you overlook the murder. Well, I mean. That happened. It, I guess it depends on your belief of the supernatural. Like, if you have zero belief in fuck supernatural. The supernatural. This is the house of notorious Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. I mean, I know it's like, oh, I have memorabilia from Jeffrey Dahmer. No, no, no. Like, but you know what I mean? Like, at the end of the day, yes, these horrible things happen in the house. But if you're not a horrible chair. person, you know what I mean? Like, Actually, uh, in March 2016, Butler put the house up for rent for $8,000 for the week of Republican National Convention. As of July 2017, the house is no longer listed on the market. Da -da. So someone bought it? I believe so. Donald Trump. Yeah, probably. Donald Trump bought it. Eight thousand dollars. I think. A w yeah, that's a lot of money. So, um, and then I had another fun little fact. In 1996, following Dharma's death, 
a group of Milwaukee businessmen raised more than $400,000 to purchase the army, the items he had used for his victims, including blades, saws, handcuffs, and a refrigerator to store body parts. They promptly destroyed them in an effort to distance the city from the horrors of Dharma's actions. Oh, so they bought them so they could get rid of them. media crisis surrounding this trial. So they wanted to completely... Initially, when I was reading it, I was like, these people wanted his fucking memorabilia. No, they wanted to destroy anything to do with him and his crimes. Have you seen the crime scene photos for this one? I actually haven't. Have you? I have. Bad? So bad. Right. Because I there was something niggling in the back of my memory and then I remembered that I had listened to a Dharma episode on a different true crime podcast that I listened to. They did right. it maybe two years ago. And I remember them describing one really chilling photo and I was like, what? I had I had to look it up. Normally I don't... That's a lie. I love looking up crime scene photos. Yeah. It's this weird, like... It's like a... I don't know. Like, maybe it makes me a terrible person that I find these things so interesting. But I think... I don't know. I just find it so interesting what an, one human being can do to exactly. another. Exactly. It's interesting anyway, that someone can come to that. There's this one Polaroid of his that is available online. You have it? I do have it up here, which I'll show you in a second okay. once I describe it. Right. So, it looks like a Cirque du Soleil contortionist until you realize the only reason... The, the only reason the body is able to contort in this way is because there is no head attached to the rest of the body. Whoa. So those are his... And there's a few different ones um, of his Polaroids that he took of victims that are available Holy online. Holy shit. It's messed up. It triggered my memory when you mentioned that they found his Polaroids around the house because you can see some of his Polaroids online. Yeah, and these are... Unfortunately, African American males as well. Yeah, it's it's very sad. Like Jesus. he kind of contorted. He would like cut bits off the bodies and like contort them and take polaroids of them. There's one photo of a man's head next to his hands and his penis. Oh, that is his penis. Yeah, that's his penis. Wow. Yeah. So we both we covered some messed up people today. Jesus Christ. Also, I feel like if anyone who didn't know that we run a true crime podcast, if they just looked at my search history, yeah. they'd be so Just concerned. wait for the FBI to be knocking down your door, going, you better not be getting it's your It's okay, I'm just a podcaster, I'm me and every other millennial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Well, that was intense. That was a bit heavy. I feel like I say that after each episode, but it really we is. We do. Well, I mean, it is intense. We're talking about people murdering other people in really horrific ways. So yeah. I feel like... If we didn't find it intense, there'd maybe be something wrong with us. Yeah. I'm finding it interesting the more we research people and the more we find out, the more correlations we kind of find. Yeah, 100%. A lot of them, especially the ones 100%. within the 70s to, to yeah. the late 90s. Yeah, it was like the friggin' peak time of serial killers. It really was. 50s to... 80s basically i've been reading um the mindhunter book that um inspired the netflix tv show yeah and they described it as i think um as a mixture between i think 
increase in psychological help, uh, a increase in forensic development, and media as well. Yeah, and making it basically very difficult to become a serial killer these days. Yeah. But I think also the reason why it seems like there's so many from that time period is because the forensics had caught up for them to be able to connect the dots. But also, there were newspapers and TV shows that were widely reporting on these things. So, it was kind of in the forefront of everyone's consciousness. Yeah. Whereas previously, like, you probably wouldn't have had an Albert Fish that would have been talked about in the newspapers. Essentially, what Mindhunter explains is that serial killers have been replaced with mass murderers in um, in in shootings. Yeah. So in America specifically, mass shootings has essentially replaced the thought of uh, serial killing. Which and when you think about it, a, a, a serial killer doesn't... Uh, someone who wants to commit these murders, someone who has these tendencies to want to kill someone, doesn't have to invite someone into their car, drive them out, dismember their body, d- d- dispose of their corpse. They just have to buy a gun from Walmart. Yeah, I guess the thing, the di- the main difference is, like, a Jeffrey Dahmer is so thought out, premeditated, yeah. where it's more, the, the shootings are more kind of like crime of, quote, passion, unquote. Yeah. It's, um... It's all horrible. really awful, though. Yeah, it is. But, um, hopefully... This time next week, we will be recording our new episode from our fancy new couch. Yeah, I hope it comes soon. I really want it to to be here by at least next week. Yeah. That be I mean, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be great. Just having that little room to sit in. We can close the doors. No cats disturbing well, we us. We probably can't close the doors because then they'll just meow at the door. You motherfuckers. <laughs> you They're never fucking. happy. Never happy. Assholes, cute little fuckers. But they're so cute. That's why they get away with murder because they're too cute. Yeah. Aren't you? You're just too cute. All right. Well, I really need to pee. And well, that was an overshare. Thank you. Um, and I want to go watch Drag Race. Okay. Work the world. Dun, dun, New dun, series dun. on Sand would highly recommend. It's very good. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad you're liking it. Um, yeah, so thank you for joining another episode. As usual, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, yeah. leave us a review, tell your mother, sister, auntie, uncle, the weird nephew that you don't really talk to aside from family gatherings. Gynecologist. Tell all of them. Tell your gynecologist if she likes true crime. I feel like a gynecologist would be someone who would like true crime. Yeah. While they're digging around inside of you, you can tell Ew. them all about your, <laughs> your favorite podcast. Never. But Say that again, ever. While they're inserting themselves. No, just stop. Just in, stop. Okay. Stop it. Um, stop your pediatrician. That would be weird. <laughs> pediatrician <laughs> listening to brutal true crime podcasts. But I'm sure they do. Pediatricians are people too. Your general practitioner. I guarantee your kindergarten teacher, who's probably a millennial, likes to go home, listen to gangster rap and horrific crime stories. Yeah, I feel like the only way you can really unwind from teaching fucking six-year-olds all day is to hear about murder. about murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's how I put that's, up with I it. think maybe that's why we don't have as many serial killers these days is that there's many ways for you to... Not that everyone is a serial killer. Everyone is a serial killer. 
but there's outlets in terms of ways. And there's can, also much more easily accessible mental health yeah, care and yeah. all that sort of stuff. It's not just neg- yeah. negated as like, oh, they're fucking insane. It's like, no, no, th- mm-hmm. this is a natural thing that's regarded these days. But yeah, thank you for tuning in. Please leave us a review. Please. Please. Please, please. I would really love it if you did that. We it would make you. me smile. Yeah. Um, shoot us a message on Instagram. Say hello. I personally, I run the Instagram and I love it when I get messages from people. It warms my heart, makes me feel really good and gives me my little self-esteem boost for the day. Boom. Um, give me that serotonin. We uh, desperately need it. Yeah. <laughs> We've got about two serotonin cells between the two of us to yeah. rub together. So Yeah. And it we we, we share joint custody of those serotonin we cells. We do. Yeah. yeah. I get the weekends. Laura gets th- uh, Monday to th- through Friday. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could um give us a little boost, that'd be great. Yeah. Thank you um, so much. But as I said, we have a new schedule. So if you're listening to this as it comes out in Australian time, it will be Monday. So I hope you are having a great day. I hope you have a great week. Yeah, and you and can make it through the week. You can do it. We you can you. do it. You can do whatever and we you want, bitch. We'll catch you on Wednesday. Bye. Bye.